Welcome one, welcome all to the M60 podcast. I am your host, John Waltz, recording in the dead of night here in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, I know last episode I got a little uh, ranty and ravey on you here, so uh, we're going to change it up a little bit. Um, it was most, it was uh, pretty much all me last episode with no guest, which isn't the usual format that I like to have. But uh, so this episode, going to change it up here for episode nine, and it's going to be my guest for the full hour. And uh, my guest for this episode, episode nine of the M60 podcast. He is uh, the Director of Player Development at Franklin Bridge Golf Club here in Franklin, Tennessee. He is the author of the soon-to-be, I'm, I'm hoping, soon-to-be best-selling book, The Champion's Playbook, Thinking Your Way to Lower Scores, and he is the 2019 Alabama PGA Chapter Instructor of the Year, my swing coach and friend, Scott Hassey. Scott, welcome to the M60 Podcast. I'm so glad we were finally able to, to make this happen. Oh, man, John, I'm excited about it. This is, uh, we're going to have some fun with this one. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm hoping that we were, and judging by your reaction to the, uh, to the questions that uh, um, I was going to pose to you. So, oh, man. So what we're going to do here for, uh, for the listeners, we're going to do the first half hour, we're just kind of do, do the usual spiel, the usual talk. Um, men's issues in the western world here in 2020 how we can be better men and how we can put our own dent in the universe and uh, kind of impact our our own world for the better and then uh, the second half we're going to do some golf related stuff we'll talk a little bit about uh, scott's past and history in the in the game and and what uh, what he kind of foresees uh, the the game of golf here going forward, and just a few uh, just a few other random questions like that. And so, um, hmm. getting the audio set up for this spot, podcast, uh, I, I changed one of the settings on my recording software by accident, and he was being a little squirrely while I was trying to fix it. So, um, so he's sure to be uh, he's sure to be entertaining. So, um, John, it's been a long day, so we're. It's been a good day, but it's a long day. Oh yes, yeah. As as they often are in the in the golf business, for sure. Yes, yes, they are. Yeah. So, um, first question I ask all of my guests, and uh, you you are no different. Um, without uh, you know, I'd say without getting any, any too too political or or too COVID esque, I guess uh, with with these questions. First question that I always ask every guest is. Um, how how would you define what it means to be a man in 2020? Oh man, come on! Uh, no, I'm kidding. Getting the hard ones out of the way, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's just start out gunslinging. Um, I think uh, it would be how I want it to be, how it should be. Um, I'm gonna go with I think how it should be, what it means to be the kind of man that other men want to emulate and um women want to be around and be a part of and i would say um kind of a simple answer would be it would be strength under control um which could be turned humility meekness um is we have incredible influence and power and um control that we can exert on the world around us and we can use that for good or we can use that 
for evil or selfish gain. Um, and so there's plenty of the selfish gain that's out there. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. um, and I've been around plenty of it. Um, not exclusive to any one particular phase of my life or another, but it's, it's definitely out there and, uh, needs a little bit of reformatting if you will, or redefining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting. I would, I just had the thought that the golf business is kind of a cutthroat business. I mean, it's, it's, a, I mean, it's like, it's like any business, uh, you know, perform or, or you're gone. And, and in the golf business, you're, especially coming from the side that, that I came from and being on the green grass side, your performance hmm. is very, very subjective. You could be doing the exact right things, but you know, the owner doesn't like, how how something looks one day and then you know to to coin a phrase your your ass is a grass so um yeah uh <laughs> well i mean yeah i would i would generally agree with that um i think it's changing for the better i mean we have Susie Whaley is the president of the PGA, which is the first female. And I think that's fantastic. Not just because she's a female and she's the first one, but I think there's a lot of women that have a lot to add to this industry. You know, it's traditionally been the rich white man's sport. Um, it still has that stigma, um, but that stigma is slowly being broken down, which I think it needs to. Um, and even in the midst of all the good that golf does, I mean, there's no other uh, sporting league that raises as much money for charity as the golf industry does. So while it does have its its negatives, as every industry does, there's certainly some really big positives. We've just got to move that narrative a little more forward. And rather than it just be something that we give, it's a part of who we are mm -hmm. as, a, yeah. as an industry. I mean, we raise... A little over three billion dollars every year for charity, which is more than the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and the MLB combined every year. Mm -hmm. So, which is which is fantastic. But then there's the daily action and the living out of like, does the industry actually reflect that? And it's becoming that way. Yeah, the women is the fastest growing segment uh, in the golf business right now, which is awesome. But yeah, it's got a long way to go. Yeah, it, it took a long time to get there. And yeah. um, well, hold hold on to that thought. Hold on to a, a few few of those other thoughts. I, I think we can probably have a really good conversation around the golf business yeah. um, and the game of golf in general. Um, for those of you who don't know, I, I spent a lot of my early career in the golf business. Um, mm -hmm. I was uh, uh, I worked a little bit in tournament administration when I was a teenager and uh, actually was a golf course superintendent for several years when I uh, got out of college. So uh, I, I think I have a kind of a unique, not necessarily a unique view of the golf business, but I, I kind of know it a little bit from the inside and from a few different angles than, uh, than your average golfer would. But uh, getting back to the, uh, the questions regarding masculinity, what, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey as a man and, and what shaped you. Oh man, uh, uh, that's going to sound really cool on the audio, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to start with the bad, um, and kind of share the good. I, I mean, I, I've been shaped in, in multiple ways. Um, 
grew up a Christian and part of a Christian household, grew up Methodist, um, certainly learned a lot about, you know, who Jesus is and what it's like to be a man from, from that perspective. I mean, it, I think he showed what uh, power under control really looks like. Um, doesn't mean I applied it very well, but in the same sense, um, you know, my, my mom was in, um, as a personal trainer and my dad was a bodybuilder. So, um, fairly high level of discipline around my family, which was fantastic. I think that helped me develop a lot of the just general maturity skills as, as you grow up. Um, but I think one of the things that was easily, you got caught up in is like, being a man looks like being tough and not crying and not being emotional and I got picked on a little bit in high school. Um, had some moments that were kind of jarring, but I, I wasn't like a victim of bullying as it's currently seen. Um, you know, stood my own ground in college. Like I, I've not somebody, I've been somebody who doesn't drink. I don't drink. Um, no, it's not for religious reasons. I just have no interest in it whatsoever. Um, and so a lot of peer pressure in college to do so. I was like, no. And so it was nice for me to learn how to stand up a little bit. Um, but I had some great mentors along the way. You know, um, love my parents, but I think as every parent knows it, as I'm beginning to know as a dad, um, it takes a village. And I had some great mentors along the way. Um, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Hoover, who I dedicated my book to, um, he was... Uh, he was a teacher. Um, I think he was a coach for a little while too on the fitness side, uh, but he was a voice teacher for a long time. And to me, he exemplified what it meant to be a man. Um, I have one, two other gentlemen. Ken Bros was the basketball coach at my high school. And then uh, in college, I had a gentleman who really kind of took me under his wing. His name was Fody Frensos. Uh, kind of an, a neat name but he was like he was like the dad of the university like athletic department you know come up and give you big hugs how's it going like genuinely cared about everybody knew what was going on in our lives what we were struggling with um, you know helped me work through um, dating and um, what that looked like dating my now wife which is great um, so those those three men were really crucial, I think, in, in me turning a corner. Um, and then I'd go as far as to say my counselor that I've seen some over the last uh, year and a half, two years, um, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But um, he's been one that's been crucial, Tal Prince. Um, so if anybody wants to go look him up, Tal Prince, he's a fantastic counselor, really cool story. A little bit of like, uh, for those that are Christians, the story of Paul in the Bible, you know, is kind of the guy that would be the least suspecting that you would be as a counselor. You know, gone through a lot of crap himself and um, came out on the other side and is actually helping other people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. those to me, and they were men that I could talk to, men who were emotional, men who weren't afraid to show and share those emotions, not just anger and sadness but the full array of uh what it meant to be gentle and compassionate and showing empathy which is different than sympathy sympathy is easy sympathy is like you know 
we've all had these people in our lives that are like stand up side, you're down in the hole and they stand out there and they throw you a ladder that only gets you like halfway up out of the hole. I'm like, come on, man, why don't you just jump all the way out there? Like I gave you a ladder, like, come on, get out. And like, oh, I'm sorry you're there. Empathy's like jumping down in the hole with you and getting to know what it's like. And so like to have guys like that, I think they're the ones that have really shaped me into who I am and I teach all sorts of people, but I think it's been one of the ways that I've actually been able to teach a lot of women, young, old, and everybody in between, and they seem to connect with that because that's how men, I think, are supposed to be. I'm not bragging on myself. I've had a lot of great mentors pour into me, and now Brooks. I mean, Brooks is absolutely fantastic mm-hmm. um, as an owner there at Franklin Bridge, and yeah, you can really tell the the culture that he's created and cultivated, and and, and he's only been there what two years? Yeah, I not mean, it's quite. Been a, he's it's only been a very very eighteen months. Yeah, it's been a very very short time that he's been the owner yeah. of of that place. But you can just tell, you can you can tell the the type of uh, culture that he's that he's created and cultivated yeah. there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, um, I would say too. Yeah, just um, I'm going to brag on you a little bit. I think that you've become one of those. I think you've definitely become one of those uh, those men as, um, that can that can show what it means to be a man and and Thank what you. it means to be. You know, um, I de- I definitely think you're you've in the short time that we've known each other. I mean, it's only been what four months, four and a half months. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, April, May, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, that you've kind of become that one of those men for me, real uh, in the short time that we've known each other. So um, I just, you know, want to publicly thank you for that. And well, thanks, John. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, that's. I remember a time when my wife and I were getting married, and like I wanted to give more to other people, and. I didn't want all of our wedding gifts to come to us and like that's just something I just didn't want and you know getting married to a girl from Mountain Brook Alabama there's a ton of money there and so you know people give you all of these things and gifts and money and it's like I want to give it to charity and all that and uh, I had a wise person tell me he said Scott you're at a time in your life where it's time for you to receive and you're going to have a chance one day to give back and so it's my chance to do that yeah Definitely, definitely. <laughs> okay, so as you uh, had mentioned, you you are married and you you are a father, um, hmm. and so tell, talk to us a little bit about about the the joys and the the pains of, of marriage and Ooh. fatherhood and and what that's been like for you. This is this is only in an hour podcast, right? Well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, uh well it would depend on the time period i guess that you would look at it um rebecca and i've been through our own fair share of struggles as i think every married couple has um yeah i was gonna say welcome to the welcome to the world there bud yeah you know um marriage isn't there to make you happy it's there to make you holy is kind of a phrase that i've heard and uh that comes with a nice punch to the gut a lot um, one of the things I've had to work through a lot <clears throat> going to counseling myself has been learning how to kind of share and express my emotions and having kids begins to pull all that out it, like joy like you've never had and happiness and um, contentment and thankfulness like you have these moments sometimes as a parent where 
you're just kind of watching your kids play and you're just thankful and and grateful and uh for the moments that you do have and um you know actually rebecca and the kids are gone right now down to um spend time with her family um in birmingham but you know that's uh, you see a broader range of emotions when you when you teach kid when you parent kids and you have kids of your own um and so for me that's been kind of great that's been a good thing um going to counseling has helped me share like hey it hurts when you do blank or when you say this 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 really bothers me or how was your day at work terrible well instead of saying terrible like i had a really difficult time with this this student and i'm i'm really struggling not, not me no <laughs> yeah not john ne- our, our lessons never go, john our lessons go perfectly <laughs> Um, but you know, uh, actually we're having a conversation last night about a couple of my players and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but just facing some things I've never faced or maybe trying to solve a problem in a way that I just kind of used to give up on or didn't recognize that was an issue and trying to help that student overcome things that I hadn't had to work through. I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years and sometimes you face a situation or you see something in a different light and it's just like... How's today? I'm just, I'm pretty down. You know, I'm just, I'm really struggling. I'm torn inside of like, I emotionally really want this for them. But at the same time, like I'm being really torn and frustrated that I don't feel like I can solve it. And so I'm simultaneously like frustrated and not angry, but just, maybe a little disappointed in them, but I can't be disappointed in them because I haven't given my best. So like there's this just weird mm-hmm. navigating yeah. emotions that we as men has just been like sucked out of us. It's like, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm tired, I'm happy, and that's like it. Like, it's very like super surface level type stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. marriage has helped me as I've learned to become a better man, um, and as I'm continuing to learn and act on that, it's like trying to break bad habits. Right. But, you know, is really learning to communicate what I feel. Um, At the ages of two to four, men show a much broader and deeper range of emotion than girls do. It's a fascinating Mm -hmm. piece of literature and scientific study that's out there. And what that says is we men are perfectly capable of emotion. We have just been, had that just sucked out of us. And that's unfortunate because it's one of the reasons why the divorce rates are so high. It's one of the reasons all of, you see men abusing women and their children and people that they love and they're just they don't know how to navigate their emotions and so it comes out and it leads to divorce and then the kids have problems and then that leads to problems with other kids and drug and alcohol abuse and you just keep going and going and going and suicide suicide rates and depression are through the roof for men because we haven't learned what it means to be a man and do we need antidepressants yeah those are great but we got to get down to the root of this problem and we got to start changing it and it starts with me that's probably the hardest part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And now I, I think I'm 
might be putting some words in your mouth here, but okay. we um, kind of kind of our generation and maybe um, I and a little bit um, in the in older generations we kind of you you had mentioned this in one of our clinics a few a few nights ago that uh, we kind of pick on the millennial generation and the younger generations for for outwardly expressing their emotions so what's the what's the difference between complete being completely driven by your emotions and being able to acknowledge them and navigate them and work work through them well i oh gosh um because i think when when we do pick on when we do pick on the the younger generation for for being so so emotional you're 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 right it it is good to to have those emotions mm -hmm. and and to acknowledge them but at the same time you've got to be able to to work through them and work towards some type of a work some towards some type of a resolution yeah. to the issue that you're facing rather than just stammering and 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 you know screaming or reeing like a like you're still a child well so i'm on my brain runs in circles when I try to answer questions like this. So this may sound like a ramble and you may have to pull it together a little bit. But Okay. I'll do um, my best. Okay. So Sounds kinda of like my golf swing. I think it's a couple of things. So if we push back at the millennial generation, a little bit our generation, but mostly younger than us. Um, if we push back on them so hard, we actually make them exactly like we are. And we perpetuate the cycle of depression, anxiety, stress, overworking, terrible husband, terrible father, terrible employee, coworker, friend. So we perpetuate the problem. Um, so this is where I don't like a lot of discussions that happen on the surface level, like Facebook and social media, like because it's you're not actually connecting with these other people, like I. I want to sit down with a millennial and talk to them why they're emotional. Well, I do that every day teaching. Like, yeah. give me your emotion. I, probably the best compliment I ever had. I know I'm not supposed to brag on myself, but I had a player tell me once, um, and if they're listening to this podcast, they will, they'll know who they are, and I'm sure they will listen to it. But is they told me, Scott, what makes you such a great coach and teacher is that you're willing to walk into those dark places with students and go to those deep places and then walk out with them. And most coaches aren't willing to go there. It's a much longer route than the sports psychology world is so popular right now, but it doesn't actually get to the root of the problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unless you're going to counseling and a trained counselor, then you're, but sports psychology in some ways is a crock of crap. I've said that more than once. So I'm just going to keep saying it. It's because when, when you deal with your emotions, um, you're dealing with who you are. And whether that's an emotion you want to have or not, you're dealing with what's really happening. And then you can get to the, why am I feeling this way? Unfortunately, in my parents' generation and their parents' generation, we had wartime and men were required to be tough. And shoot, ain't no nothing being tough about getting shot at like ain't nothing fun about that you didn't have a clue where you are you don't have 
cell service, you got radio, and you lost your platoon, and, you know, I mean, that's a deep, scary, terrifying thing. And when you come back from war, we got to deal with that. It ain't about being macho. It's about being vulnerable. Right, yeah. And that's and it's going to hurt when you go to those fears. And, um, I mean, I've had a number of my students cry when I go to those places. But when we go there, we can, we can heal and we can move out of that um, and we can deal with it. So, I mean, I, I think the balance is don't use social media to vent that, you know, um, find somebody to connect with, find some men and some women around you that you can connect with, that you can mm-hmm. sit down and have a conversation with. Um, it's easy to sit up there and shout it from the rooftops. This is a little more vulnerable with the podcast and it's kind of calm and laid back and just being honest. Um, and then in the same token, I would say to the generation that's saying, don't, lash out and blah, 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 blah. And that's why you're seeing some of the crazy stuff going on in our society right now, whichever you pick the line item on the on yeah. the media calendar yeah. of the, the rage, rage du jour. Yeah. yeah, I mean, whatever whatever it is, I like to try and look and connect with those people and go, well, why do they feel like that? They're, when somebody's crying out, it's they're not being heard. That's why people raise their voices in arguments. That's why I've done that myself in relationships with people. And when you do that, you don't actually get the person's voice. And so, like, rage is not the real emotion. Rage is the culmination of a bunch of others that you haven't learned how to deal with. But we've got to meet, like, why do you feel that way? Like, getting to go and work in Fairfield, Alabama, and try and bring golf to one of the poorest areas of Birmingham with the highest crime rates. Shoot, they're living in crap conditions like you can't imagine. And when you can connect with them in that level, like what's it like to be you? Um, I can't remember who wrote uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the books I didn't like reading in high school. Right, yeah. I was a math guy, didn't like English. But I've come to appreciate some of his quotes, and one of them is, you never really understand a man until you can crawl up in his skin and walk around in it for a day. Like not, you know, we use the phrase of like walking another person's shoes or another man's shoes, but crawling up in their skin, man, that's a, that's a deep emotional phrase. And I think it's important for us to go there and just acknowledge it. So um, it's a matter of listening to both sides. Because the ones that are being tough, they ain't tough. It's a front. They got pain, and we got to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. So real quickly, we've got a couple minutes left before we shift gears and go into the uh, golf-related questions. But uh, this um, this podcast is meant to to give men encouragement, action steps, inspiration, and and hope for life in the Western world. So. What advice would you give to uh, a young person starting out his his life? You know, they're, maybe they're at a point in life where things are stagnant, or they feel like things really aren't going to be going anywhere for them. They're just kind of frustrated and down on life. What what advice would you give to them? And uh, you know, what what uh, action steps would you would you give to someone in that situation? 
if you had asked me this question two or three years ago, I wouldn't have answered it this way. But first one, find the best counselor that you can possibly afford within your budget and go see him. Step one, do it. I don't even care if you don't have any problems right now. Find one, get connected, go see him regularly. Shoot once a quarter, twice a year, make it a regular thing. Tal Prince is the guy that I see and that Rebecca and I have done some marriage counseling with. Like Nothing to be ashamed of that. I, and it's, it's really, to the golf industry point that you asked about earlier, like it's really hard when you see men make fun of their wives and say things about their wives on the golf course that they would never say to them in any other context. And it happens at bars too. It's not just the golf course. It happens at the football game with your buddies. Like, But that's the rich white man sport. That's the stigma that's still there. When you hear them vent and say things like that, like what that, that emotion that comes up in me is like, dude, you're hurting, bro. Like go to counseling. Don't be embarrassed to go to marriage counseling because you're afraid of what your buddies are going to think. And I'm sitting here working on my marriage and people are sitting around me, you know, excuse my French, bitching about their wives. And it's, it's really hard when you're really working on it and you really want it to be better and they're over there just shitting all over them. Sorry, I'm not supposed to use language, but like it's, it's really frustrating and it's, it's, it's really challenging. And as I've worked through my own issues, it's weird to try and say I have compassion for guys like that, but they don't know anything else. Like I have close friends that I can vent my frustrations about my wife or my kids or my work or whatever. Um, but in that setting in my friends, it's constructive. Like let's move it forward and you're going to have frustrations with people around you. It's just the way it's living life. It's relationships. Mm-hmm. Relationships aren't always easy. Um, so, for me, step one would be go to see a counselor. Step two, find some friends, some guys, some mentors that you can trust. It's 2020. We're in America. Find somebody you can trust. Find a guy that's emotional. And no, just because they're older doesn't mean that they're good at it. I mean, I've, I've had guys that I look up to that are great at being emotional. Mr. Hoover is one of them. I've had guys in his same age bracket, 70s, 80s that I look up to them for maybe some of their skills, but not for their ability and emotions as men. And so one's really in tune with it, the other's not. And I don't emulate them. I have compassion for them, but I don't like to emulate them. So find a mentor, find somebody. They're there. And if you're struggling to find them, talk to your counselor. Those are my two things. There's hope there. The stigma's being lifted off of counseling and going to see a psychologist, that stigma is being lifted, and I'm trying to do what I can to help lift it. Yeah. So I, I would say also, being that we're in a medium like this, in a, in a podcast medium, you know, there are plenty of really great podcasters out there mm. that um, you know you you can turn your you can turn your car into a, a virtual university and, and yeah, learn absolutely. and grow and and do all kinds of things through through the internet and, th- and if you if you have a smartphone and chances are you're probably listening to this podcast on your smartphone you have hmm. the wealth of the world's information in your pocket so 
Um, yep. Scott and I would encourage you to, to seek out that information and look for, look for good, good mentors that maybe, maybe you can't meet with them face to face, but you can, you can hang out with them for a couple hours every yeah. day. So I think the best piece of advice my counselor gave me, he said, Scott, at some point you're no longer a victim, you're a volunteer. That, that's Amen. hard. That's really hard to swallow. Um, and if you begin to see yourself as a volunteer, you then take action to find somebody to help you out of the situation that you're in. There are people out there. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that was our first half hour of men's related questions with my guest, Scott Hassey. We're going to take a quick break here and then we're going to get into some golf related questions and topics and discussions. We're going to talk about his book entitled The Champion's Playbook, Thinking Your Way to Lower Scores. And uh, who knows, uh, we might just get off off track and uh, something else that's golf related. So, well, I'm glad I didn't cry. I made it. Yeah, I, I almost there. I did for a second. You yeah, saw yeah. I thought I, I thought maybe I saw a little bit of a break Man. in there, but no. It, uh, it's okay it, to cry, by the way. It, it is. It is. So, we'll be right back. Uh, this is the M60 podcast. Hey, new episode, new season, new recording location for the M60 podcast, and you know what that means, new sponsors. Well, hopefully new sponsors. If you are interested in contributing to the content that you see here in the creation of this show, you can hit me up on Patreon, link is in the show notes in the description, or you can hit me up via email if you're interested in doing any kind of sponsorship with this show. Just put in the subject line sponsorship and you can email me at m60podcast at gmail.com. That is the letter M, the number 60, podcast at gmail.com. Just be sure to put sponsorship in the subject line there. I've got a lot of exciting things coming for these next few episodes, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the M60 Podcast. I am your host, John Waltz, and this is our second segment with my friend, swing coach, mentor, all-around good guy, Mr. Scott Hassey. He is the author of The Champion's Playbook, Thinking Your Way to Lower Scores. Mm. Uh, Scott is the Director of Player Development at Franklin Bridge Golf Club here in Franklin, Tennessee, and... Scott, we're going to get into some golf-related questions. I hope you heard the theme there of that, uh, that intro uh, song for the... Uh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that's actually one of, uh, one of my favorites. I, I don't readily admit to... Uh, you know, we're, we're talking earlier about uh, admitting to your emotions. I don't uh, 
readily admit to liking a lot of Carrie Underwood songs, but uh, that that is uh, one that I, I do particularly like. And she is married to my favorite hockey player or ex-hockey player. He's retired now, but uh, um, we miss you, Mike Fisher. We miss you. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, let's get into the let's get into the book. Start. A, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the the book here and and. Um, um, just give us a quick preview, quick synopsis, uh, elevator pitch, I guess, if you will, of the uh, of the Champions Playbook. What was the inspiration behind writing it? And uh, just take it away from there. Uh, well, uh, the first objective is there's one rule: shoot a lower score. So um, yeah, where where did uh, where did that come from? That that philosophy come from? I just. I got tired of people building beautiful golf swings, and we were building beautiful golf swings. And players got better, by and large. They get a little bit better. I'm sitting here going, people suck at making decisions. Like, they are awful. Even very, very good players. People go, they're a great player. I'm trying to reformat that language a little bit, which will probably take me the rest of my life to reformat the language. But... Yeah, I, I would say, just come, and come to mind, I would say someone that's got a good swing and hits the ball well, I would say they are a good ball striker, but yes. maybe they're not a great overall player because of oh, yeah. that mental aspect. I, I would say, you know, myself, I'm, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, you've seen my golf swing and you've mm-hmm. seen what I'm capable of. I, I'd say I'm a slightly above average ball striker, but yes. I've got a lot of work to do on this other side of the, of the game. Yeah, and people look at my book and go, oh, it's a mental book. I was like, mm, no, not, not really. Like, you're really talking about strategy in the mental game. The mental part is course seven. Or, I mean, I call my chapters courses because I want you to treat it like a class, um, like you were actually coming down and taking one of my classes on course strategy. But, like, people are awful at making decisions. And I don't care who you are. And it's not as simple as like, well, I need to hit my three wood off the tee instead of driver, or I need to just hit it to the middle of the green. No, no, no. Core strategy goes way deeper than that. Um, and for all of the videos and articles that have been written on the golf swing, I believe that strategy is far more complex than the golf swing itself. Because you can face a virtually infinite number of scenarios. Um, and so my book is designed to peel back all those layers down to the core principles of great strategy. And once you learn principles, you're then empowered to learn everything else. Um, and so for me, it's a book if you want to shoot lower scores, period. On average, the people that go through my book or work through the content in a class setting that's also in my book which is how the book came to be. It started as a class, ran a little four or six week class. I ran a couple of different ones and I wanted to test to see if the content worked. And sure enough, on the average, people drop over three and a quarter strokes in that four to six week period with no work on their swing other than their normal practice. Is it a scientific study? No. Is it data that is, has proven it to work? Yes. I'm not going to be the one up there going, you can lose up to 10 strokes. Yeah, I've got a guy who's gone from a 14 handicap and trending at a 6. That's 8 strokes. Like, 14 handicaps don't go to 6s. Just for the record, 14 handicaps don't go to 6s. Unless they've got a 6 level ability, which I see a lot. Um, But they're playing to a 12, 13, 14. 
They just ain't got a clue how to play. So, you know, for me, that's the reason I wrote it. Um, it came about by me watching our students get better, and I'm just going, yeah, but they still suck. They hit it better, but they're still making the same bad decisions they were making when they were, you know, hitting it bad. Yeah. They just happen to have a little better skill set. Or in my case, 20 years ago, you know, I'm yeah. still thinking I can hit a certain type of shot that I wasn't really good at to begin with. So, yeah. so well, and I think people, like I mentioned, I think people think that strategy is something very simple. No, basketball strategy is really simple. Football strategy is really simple. Well, it's com- yeah, it's complex, but it, relative to golf, imagine if a football field had round edges and a different size football field every time. What if they changed the downs on you? Like, okay, this one's going to be third down, this one's going to be fourth down, this one's going to be you get five downs. Mm-hmm. That's golf. Yeah. yeah. I mean, wind affects football a little bit, and sometimes weather conditions affect football but like or even baseball i mean people think that baseball strategy that that was the example that came came to my mind Mm. when we were we were talking about it is that there are so many different data points and different stat categories i feel like are being created every five years i mean when i was a kid you didn't even think of like like the whip like i i never even knew what that stat was until i had to look it up on the internet one day you know walks and i think hits per innings pitch or Mm -hmm. something something like like that and and then there's a stat called you know war war so i mean there's so many different data points in baseball but what you what exactly what you were just saying you know imagine baseball field instead of being 400 feet it's you know, 7,000 yards long, you've got to, you know, there are so many, you have as many or more data points influencing your your golf shot every single shot than you do in a particular setting in a situation in a a baseball game. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, and here's the other problem with stats. Like, we we are in a data-driven world. And I I talk about data in my phone and keeping track of your stats and all that's important. Um, most people are, do a terrible job of analyzing the data um, because guess what? We suck at math. The other part of data is uh, there's something that's beginning to get discussed called thick data. There's data that you see, and then there's the data of like, okay, why are those stats that way? One of my least favorite things is when they put up there on the TV like, so-and-so is number one in, in driving that week. Why? Well, the natural assumption is that he's hitting it really good. Well, that's only part of the equation. <clears throat> Maybe it's a golf course that's set up for his shot pattern or her shot pattern, if we're talking the LPGA. You know, Bubba Watson drives the ball really well and has great ball striking numbers at the Masters. Why? You've got uneven slopes on virtually every shot other than the tee ball. You have... Uneven, you have tiny greens with lots of undulation, and you have holes that have a lot of shape to them. Well, what kind of player does that fit? Bubba Watson. Mm-hmm. Of course he plays well there. Firestone's a whole other equation. Firestone's like hitting down runways. Well, why doesn't he play well there? Because it doesn't match his style of play. Yep. Yep. So, like, we don't get, like... <clears throat> Thick TPC data Scottsdale, gets, he, he doesn't do well at the Phoenix Open. I've, and yeah. You know, he, he mentioned something about the, the course out there a few years ago, and he caught a lot of flack for it. And, of 
course, we all know how boisterous the fans can be there. So yeah, but yeah, you know, getting getting back to to what what you were saying. Yeah, you, you've got you have to look at the why behind the data. You know, I, I've even watched a a college coach, and some of this can sound like I'm bashing on college coaches. There's a lot of very qualified coaches, but there's a lot of coaches that are just filling a position and they play college golf. Like, awesome, you played college golf. Okay, does that mean you know how to coach? Not necessarily. There's some great players on the tour that suck as teachers. There's some great players on the tour that are awesome as teachers. And there's a bunch in between. But a college coach was looking at the same set of data that I was. And the coach made the point, well, she needs to hit it further. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll ride with you, hitting it further. I, you've heard from me. I love hitting it far. Far is oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> hashtag hit bombs. Yeah, hashtag Phil Mickelson, hashtag hit bombs. Um, and that's an important equation. However, when we looked at her data set, coach wanted her to hit it 20 yards further. Okay, that's fine. If we move her 20 yards further on average and we look at how much closer she would be, so to give you an example, she had a lot of seven irons in, which for her was a 140 to 150 yard shot. So you look at that range and you look at the number of strokes taken from there to get into the hole. If you move her 20 yards closer, that's now the 120 to 130 yard range. She's actually scores worse from that range on average from 120 to 130 yards than she did from 140 to 150. So what you just did by adding length to her shot was you just raised her scoring average, not the other way around. What, what are you doing? It's not a conversation with the coach and everything's fine. But it's like, I get where you're going, but she needs to be much better with these clubs before we add the distance. I'm not opposed to adding the distance. But if she's going to add the distance, then where she's going to be hitting from, most of the time she wasn't a long hitter, so she had a ton of seven irons in. Even her nine irons going to make her worse. And she had a lot of nine irons in. So it's not like, oh, well, she's, she's only hit ten nine irons. Well, no, she's hit dozens of them and dozens of seven irons. And she's way worse with the nine. So, like, you've got to understand why that's the case. And just because you miss the fairway doesn't mean that it's bad. Just because you miss the green doesn't mean that it's bad. So there's, there's the thick data, which is really getting to the root of why it was that way. Could be what you were thinking about. Could be your understanding of the game. Could be you just made a bad swing. I mean, I know I'm trying to give a really a simple answer to a really complex thing, but like, it's not as simple as people want it to be. And I'm trying to get people to stop talking about strategy like it's just, oh, just play smart. Starting <laughs> with some uh, actually on my podcast that I did. Uh, Yes, Actually. check it out. They, he's got a he's got a really funny and uh, really handsome co-host on his most recent episode. Or, <laughs> yeah, you didn't record that other one with the the good looking woman on it, did you? Yeah, I already did. You already did. Yeah. Is it up? Yeah, it's up. Ah! <laughs> Gosh, well, I'm the, not the best looking the woman. Two the two before yes, that. The two before that. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Very insightful young man. Very. Uh, I can't can't imagine who it was. Yeah, I mean, it was me. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say, it rhymes with. Ron Taltz, you know. Um, but, uh, no, we... I don't even know what I was going to say talk about. But, um, yeah, I'm completely lost. This is fun. This is great. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. 
live podcast. I did. Yeah, recorded live here, folks. Yeah. Um, that we were talking thick about data. Yeah, thick data hitting the ball further. Something we were talking about on your yeah, your I was going to mention. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It'll come to me later. Okay. You'll ask a question. It'll prompt me. Oh, very well. So, um, let's let's stick with the book a little bit more. Okay. Um, if if you could, if you're okay, because I know you want people to buy the book because you know you've got a uh, wife and, and kids to take care of, and you know I spent a lot of time writing the book. Too. And you did. You and um. So with with each chapter or with each course, uh-huh. give us just one little just little nugget, one little preview that maybe from from each chapter and and what uh, what can people look forward to when with each chapter when they when they go through the book? Well, the so the first chapter um, really gets down to where I we talked about earlier in the show, like I like to get down to that heart place and go down to those deep places with people because changing habits on the outside doesn't necessitate or doesn't cause a change on the inside. Change on the inside almost always causes a change on the outside. Um, so I start with what do you believe? Course one, what do you believe? Um, and... Uh, to me, that's the starting point. Your actions and your words tell me everything that you believe about the game of golf, whether you get frustrated or you get upset or you go, oh, golf is such a stupid game. Well, when you say that, you tell me a lot about what you believe the game really is. When you say golf is such a stupid game, then you're saying that it can be mastered. You're saying that you can hit it good enough to master it. You're saying that it's a game of essentially where you're completely out of control of the outcome. No, you're in control. You're not in complete control, but you have influence over what happens. Oh, I just, one day it's going great, or a couple holes is going great, and then I just hit one over here. Yeah, there's a chance you could hit it over there. You got to know when it's likely to happen, what's going on in the circumstances surrounding what causes those to happen. I have people go, I just know what happens. Like, well, keep track of it. Keep track of all the shots. It's like, there's a pattern. There's always a pattern. So when people say things like that golf is such a stupid game or um or let me i'm trying to think of an action specifically um would be just this frustration of bad shots bad shot bad shot bad shot or you hit one bad shot and somebody gets frustrated i think it's a game of perfect um or they're always talking about trying to hit it further than so-and-so. Well, you think it's a game of hitting it far. It's a game of shooting a lower score, period. I mean, I watched some football a couple years ago. Um, I can't remember which teams because I don't really care that much about football. I know I'm in Blasphemy. the Blasphemy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I enjoy- be careful who you say that to in yeah, SEC country. I enjoyed watching it. I think it was uh, Florida State like kept winning these games at the end. And everybody's like, it just, they're, they're such a worse team. They shouldn't win. I was like, the, football is decided by who has the highest score at the end of the game. It doesn't matter if they scored all 14 points on some lucky bounces at the end of the game. Don't let the game be that close. Or if they score on, they just get lucky in the last quarter. Well, I, it ain't about luck. Don't let the game be that close. I, I, 
Yeah. Just yeah. just the way it is. Like the game is about who has the most points on the yeah. board. Well, well, you know what? Uh, going into a different sport, mixed martial arts. Dana White, the owner of the UFC, he always says to his his fighters, "Do not leave it in the hands of the judges." Yeah. Because you don't know what's going to happen. No. You know, in football, do not leave it up to your kicker. Nope. Don't leave it up to, I mean, wrestling. I have a really close friend of mine who's a four-time All-American in wrestling, and he's a coach in wrestling, and we talk periodically. And, uh, I mean, he teaches all of his kids to pin. Not getting back points and picking up points. Like, don't pick up points because there's a chance they can miss points. They ain't missing a pin. He teaches all of them to pin them, pin them as fast as you can. He's one of the few programs out there that's teaching kids to pin them. That's how he played. He's an aggressive wrestler. It's the reason why he's a four-time All-American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. And he did that for two years at Division Two, and then went to Division One. Was he held the number one spot for? I don't know, it was like fourteen weeks or something in wrestling, and then he injured his MCL in the quarterfinals. Oh, and I mean. Yeah. You can shoot him with cortisone, but there's only so much he's going to do without snapping it in half. Right, yeah. So, yeah. as an aggressive wrestler, that's a pretty big injury. But So, that's course one. What do you believe? That tells me every everything I need to know. Um, and so, as we look into further parts of the book, I start to kind of pull these layers apart. Um, and to me, that's kind of the, that's the fun part. It's also the hard part is it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But course two is all about understanding the architect. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. I, um, that's probably one of the the biggest realizations. One of my favorite things that that came out of the book was about how how you are on offense and the course and the course architect are on defense. A hundred percent of the time. Yeah. You are never ever ever. And I, I never thought about it that way. But I mean, you can. You, I know this is audio, but I mean, you can see my wall back here. I like all different kinds of sports that are where there's offense and defense, but I never, it never dawned on me to apply that to golf. It's amazing to me how many people say that. I'm, I'm like personally surprised. Like to me, I'm like, well, isn't that the obvious? I mean, we've always said like, it's you against the golf course, but nobody's pulled that back another layer and understood, well, why, what does that mean? So when you say that and people don't understand it, like, well, no, it's not. I'm playing against all these other people. I mean, you can say that all you want, but if they don't understand the principle of what that, like, that's right, but it's not, it's not complete. Well, I mean, what does the defense do? They keep you from scoring, trying to prevent you from scoring. What does the offense do? You try to score. What are you trying to do? Score as low as you possibly can. And so when you understand that, you begin to go, okay, that's my opponent. Now, match play is a little bit different deal. <laughs> match play, at times, you have two defensive players. Your opponent may play defensively based on your offensive take, and you may have to play a defensive movement against the other player, but it's not a defensive movement against the golf course. It's an offensive movement against the golf course, but can be a defensive strategy against your opponent. Match play is a different beast. Oh, yes. Always yeah. has been, always will be. It's another reason why I don't know how to put the evidence together, but I've done some just general interviewing of players that I've taught and coached. Um, 
that are from the UK. And if you look at our Ryder Cup record, you may actually, I don't know if you can pull it up on your uh, Yeah, I can, you can. I can do that real quick. So yeah. just pull up Ryder Cup record. Okay, yeah. And find out what year the U.S. stops winning like crazy. It, it, you're going to be fascinated by what's happening. Now, the question is, what goes on in that period of time? Well, what you really begin to see is when that jump happens and all of a sudden Europe starts winning a whole bunch, well, the Ryder Cup is match play format. So when you look at match play, obviously there are other things going on in match play. You've got singles, you've got alternate shot, you have some other formats going on um, within that. But that's when the rise of very exceptional uh, and a large number of exceptional um, European players comes about. And I don't know if you're looking at Wikipedia or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to pull it up here. Um, if you look at the U.S. Ryder Cup record, it yeah, is... I'm looking at... Uh, it's premiergolf.com uh, yep. is the, the website that it brought me to. Um, Wikipedia, I think, is pretty good, too. But it, it is... So what is happening? All of a sudden, you have a bunch of European players. Guess what format they play a lot growing up? Match play. Everybody talks. I, it's funny to me because nobody's paying attention to it. Nobody's talking about it. Why do we keep losing in the Ryder Cup? And because we no longer have the skill advantage we used to have. The skill advantage is gone. Yeah, it looks like the last time the United States, based on what I'm seeing here, the last time the United States won consecutive Ryder Cups was 91, 93, and 93. Yep. And then uh, from 95, um, it looks like pretty much, and from 90, 95, 97, Europe won um, 99. That was that. Uh, that was that year that Justin Leonard hit that that huge putt there on on yeah. Sunday that to to win it, but um, we barely won. It. Yeah, we barely won it. Yeah, and and that took like a huge comeback on Sunday, right? If yep. I if I remember right, I mean, yep. and so then Europe won the next three. Um, United States won one in there in in two thousand eight, and then Europe's won the next three since then. That's why I say the next big secret in golf is strategy. It's not the golf swing anymore. There ain't any secrets out there. You know, no, the seven secrets of the golf. No, you won't. You suck at strategy. Everybody does. Yeah, yeah. And when you get better and you already have great foundational strategy, you accelerate so fast because now your skills have caught up to your decision-making ability. And it's just really hard to get your decision-making ability to catch up with your skill set because so much of that is learned. In, by the environment that you're in, and it's just hard to find people like that. So that's kind of course two is really understanding that architect. Um, and uh, moving on from there, um, I had a couple of different directions that I could go. And, you know... Um, <laughs> well, if um, we don't necessarily have to do each individual chapter, okay. but uh, maybe Let me just... Give you a favorite one. Those are probably the probably the the two biggest ones that yeah. that really would stand out to me and that's that's just a starting off point yeah um, because those for, for me those are those are really um how do i want to put it they 
they there are truths about the game that I didn't that didn't really dawn on me or mm-hmm. realize they were they were revelations that uh, they were revelations to me but they're not necessarily revel- revelations to your uh, to your elite players no um, but you'd be surprised how many of my elite players are like man I've never thought about it that way I was like you should because mm-hmm. that's what that's what strategy is yeah you know who your opponent is yeah. and yeah. Um, I'll, I'll leave this point course six. I could write a whole book on Core 6, and I may write a second book that's almost all Core 6, which is developing your instincts. Mm-hmm. Well, if your instincts currently suck and they're terrible, how do you develop new ones? Well, it starts with we've got to change what you believe about the game. Then you've got to understand the opponent that you're playing. And guess what? They're way smarter than, well, I need to hit three wood here. I need to aim at the middle of the green. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That is massively underestimating who you're playing against. And that's why I say thinking your way to lower scores. It's not about thinking about your swing. I'm not, not going to get you thinking about your swing. But I'm going to get you thinking about who you're playing against. Mm-hmm. If you understand that, you can really become an incredible player. You can be somebody who's a 14 handicap and play to a 6. I see a lot of single-digit handicaps that are playing to double-digit handicaps. Or people that are better than that should be better than scratch that are playing to five or six. You you looked at me when you said double digits or when you said single digits <laughs> playing to double digits. You looked at me kind of kind of tough there. I'm detecting a uh, an underlying yeah. message there. Yeah, get with the program, John. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, man. I'm trying. I know it just I'm takes trying. time. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Scott, we are. Pretty much coming up here on time. Um, I'm going to do a couple other questions kind of behind the Patreon and the paywall here. So um, if you want to hear uh, some extra content with Scott and I, um, just go to my Patreon site, and uh, I'll have a link to that in the description. I'll also have a link to the uh, Amazon uh, to the Amazon link where you can find Scott's yep. book. Uh, the book is The Champion's Playbook, Thinking Your Way to Lower Scores. And um, Scott, tell us a little bit about uh, about your podcast and where uh, where, where the best play, places uh, people to find you online are. Uh, so my podcast, I've kept everything naming the same, so it's easy. Uh, just search the Champions Playbook on Apple Podcasts. Uh, there's also um, a podcast hosting platform platform called Podbean that it's on. So I'm still working to get it on Spotify and YouTube. Um, having some little technical difficulties to get that up and running, but uh, you can see portions. Of, you can see it on YouTube, but it's not like visible. I mean, it's not. There's not like a visual of me. It's just audio. So mm, gotcha. best place is Apple Podcasts. Um, if you have an Android, find a friend with <laughs> with, <laughs> with an app a, with an iPhone, or or yeah. download the Podbean app and go check it out. So. Um, and I put the content there. I mean, I have 76 episodes now. Um, by the time somebody listens to this whole thing in a couple of days and re-listens to it, they'll probably have pushing on 80. There you go. So you we're go. having fun, man. There's a lot of topics. Oh, yeah. All about strategy and getting you to shoot lower scores. So lots to learn. Yep. And you can find him on Instagram, Scott Hassey Golf. Is that? Nope. S. Nope. Hassey Golf. S- it's two S's, two E's. S. Okay. Hassey Two S's, two E's. Golf. Okay. All right. And we'll have a link to that in the in the show notes in the description for you. So he is Mr. Scott Hassey, PGA instructor, director of player development at Franklin Bridge Golf Club, author of The Champion's Playbook, Thinking Your Way to Lower Scores. 
And that is it for this episode of the M60 Podcast. I am your host, John Waltz, so I, I hope you really enjoyed it. We'll see you again next time on the M60 Podcast. And, yeah, that's, that's it. Thanks, John.